In the 14th century, Italian poet Dante Alighieri penned his masterpiece, The Divine Comedy. The epic poem tells the story of a lost pilgrim who is guided through hell to meet his beloved in heaven. This fantastic journey is also a coded allegory. Hidden in the symbolism is a much deeper story with a map of history that connects Dante's life with our own. This is Dante's history. Inferno, Canto 10. O Tuscan, thou who through the city of fire ghosts alive, thus speaking modestly, be pleased to stay thy footsteps in this place. To sum up our tale so far, it's the year 1300, and a troubled poet seeks salvation through the guidance of another poet from 13 centuries before his time. To reach this place, the poet must first descend into the depths of hell. Beyond the unguarded gate, past the forgotten spiritually neutral, they cross the river of woe to enter the underworld of the dam. In the first circle, the poet met hopeless geniuses like his guide Virgil, who must settle for an eternity in a dim pasture. Then they successfully traverse the area of incontinence, the second, third, fourth, and fifth circles, home of the insatiable souls who lack self-control, the lustful, gluttonous, greedy, and wrathful, respectively. In the last canto, our heroes kept the faith in the face of fear and gained access to the sixth circle and the magnificent city of Dis, which turned out to be a graveyard. The canto ended with the poet walking among the flaming tombs of those who tread the line between the passive and active sinners, the false prophets and their misguided followers. In this canto, Dante the Pilgrim will speak with some of those heretics, and Dante the Poet will give us more insight into the civil war that tore his city apart and left him exiled. The canto begins with our pilgrim following his guide along a narrow path between the city wall and the sepulchres of the cemetery. The sixth circle exists between the areas of incontinence and violence. So this circle is about an incontinence of the intellect rather than the body. The pilgrim notes that they are moving in circles. This may be in reference to the right turn they made at the end of the last canto. Up until now, they've been moving towards the left. Dante asks Virgil to turn around and tell him about the damned souls lying in the open and unguarded graves they are passing. Virgil tells him that these tombs will one day be closed up after the souls are reunited with their bodies in Jehoshaphat. This is a biblical reference to the prophesied location of the Last Judgment, where people of all nations will one day come together to be resurrected and enlightened at the end of time. Virgil is saying that this bunch will be in their tombs forever. As the ghostly guide points out, this lot contains Epicurus and his followers. Epicureans are typically viewed as pleasure seekers or hedonists, but this is actually a common misconception. Epicurus's school in Athens taught something called summum bonum, or highest good, 
the cultivation and practice of virtues as a path to personal happiness. He believed one should strive to improve one's life by eliminating pain and suffering, to avoid experiencing it and inflicting it, while also enjoying harmless pleasures. He reasoned that when we don't have pain, we have less need for pleasure. The teachings also included a call for moderation, warning that overindulgence will ultimately lead to suffering. It is impossible to live a pleasant life without living wisely and well and justly. And it is impossible to live wisely and well and justly without living pleasantly. Epicureans also believe that death was the end of both the body and the soul. This is the belief that Dante finds the most contention with. Here we have another example of their punishment fitting their crime, or contrapasso, which means suffer the opposite. Since these materialists didn't believe in a spiritual world or afterlife, their souls must spend eternity in a tomb. Virgil assures the impatient pilgrim he will learn more soon and calls Dante out for harboring a secret desire. He is eager to meet the other Florentine citizens the gluttonous Jaco warned him about. The pilgrim admits to keeping his curiosity hidden. Suddenly, a voice speaks to the pilgrim, referring to Dante as a modest Tuscan. His secret wishes come true. Another Florentine has recognized Dante by his accent, although this damned soul describes his relationship with Florence as somewhat hostile. The booming voice from the tomb makes the pilgrim move a little closer to his guide. But Virgil tells him to look again, for Ferinatta has risen from the waist up. Ferinatta del Uberti was a well-known Florentine aristocrat, born nearly a hundred years before Dante began writing his epic poem. As a boy, Ferinatta witnessed the birth of the Guelph and Ghibelline divide, with his family, the Uberti, becoming leaders of the latter faction. The dead Florentine hero is perched up in his grave, with his chin held high, staring down his nose at Dante. Virgil urges the startled pilgrim to go speak with him. As the pilgrim approaches, Farinata looks him up and down and demands to know who his ancestors are. Until his exile, Dante was a Guelph. When the pilgrim admits this to the Ghibelline leader, Farinata raises his eyebrows and brags about how his ancestors defeated the Guelphs twice. The pilgrim responds with a little quip, noting that if they banished the Guelphs and they still returned, perhaps the Ghibellines weren't very good at it. Their medieval rap battle is interrupted by another damned soul rising up from the same tomb so that only his head shows, as if he were on his knees. The shade looks around, beyond Dante, as if searching for someone else. Unsatisfied, it speaks. Weeping, he said to me, If through this blind prison thou goest by loftiness of genius, where is my son, and why is he not with thee? In the pilgrim's reply, the damned soul can be identified. This is Cavalcante di Cavalcanti, another Florentine aristocrat, but one aligned with the Guelph. You might remember his son Guido Cavalcanti, as mentioned 
in the episode with the gluttonous Jaco. Guido was also married to Farinata's daughter, mostly for political reasons. The pilgrim's answer to Cavalcanti's question about his son, why is he not with him, is a matter of some debate. And I to him, I come not of myself. He who is waiting yonder leads me here, whom, in disdain, perhaps, your Guido hath. The pilgrim is telling him he is not here by his own genius, but with the help of Virgil. The exact meaning of the last line is one of the most debated in the poem, just part of what makes this canto one of the most difficult in all of the Inferno. Some believe Guido's dislike is of Virgil's ideology, his imperialist leanings or his tame Latin poetry, or that he was only a poet, not also a philosopher. Others think the pilgrim is alluding to Guido's disapproval of Beatrice. Guido didn't view Dante's devotion to her as a path to salvation. Though Guido was a major influence in Dante's good friend, the two shared many ideological differences. Virgil also represents reason by way of divine grace, and Guido was an atheist. His father may have also been one as well. Cavalcante focuses on the pilgrim's use of the past tense had. Guido's father fears his son is dead, no longer in the light. The pilgrim hesitates to answer the old man. Before he can reply, Cavalcante falls back into his grave. Something interesting has happened here, but we'll get back to that later in the canto. For now, the pilgrim is once again left with the magnanimous Farinata, who has remained in his heroic pose the whole time. Neither he nor Cavalcante acknowledged each other, and the Ghibellinder simply picks up his discourse against the Guelphs right where he left off, countering the pilgrim's last remark about the art of returning from exile. Farinata laments about his family's permanent exile. He taunts the pilgrim with a prophecy that Dante will also understand this feeling. When the face of the lady who rules these lands has been rekindled fifty times. Unlike the rest of the Ghibelline supporters who were exiled from Florence, the Uberti were not allowed back. They were considered enemies of the state, who were to be decapitated if they returned to Florence. Farinata is warning that soon Dante will understand the feeling of permanent exile. The queen of the underworld mention is Proserpina, also known as Luna, an embodiment of the moon. If the poem takes place in 1300, 50 months later would be precisely in the spring of 1304, when Dante the poet learned that attempts of his allies in Florence to recall him from exile had failed. Farinata doesn't understand why his family received such bitter treatment from the Guelphs and the church. The pilgrim is quick to respond why. He says the reason the church and their supporters despise the Umberti is because of a great slaughter that stained the Arbia red. The Arbia is a river in central Italy, just south of Siena. On September 4th, 1260, it was the site of the famous Battle of Monteverdi, the bloodiest battle ever fought in medieval Italy, which is believed to have had as many as 10,000 casualties. It was Farinata who led the Ghibellines into victory against the Guelphs that day. 
try not to defend himself, saying that he was not the only Ghibelline, and the others have been allowed to return from exile. He adds that he defended the city from ruin. It is true that after capturing Florence in 1260, Farinata famously saved it from total destruction, convincing his Ghibelline allies to spare some of the homes, claiming he was a Florentine first, Ghibelline second. For that, Farinata is also known as the savior of Florence. The pilgrim responds by telling Farinata his service to Florence will only benefit his descendants. He then asks Farinata to explain something that had been puzzling him. How is it that he can see into the future, something like Dante's exile, but cannot see into the present, such as how Cavalcante can't even tell if his son is alive? Farinata admits that he and Cavalcante see with imperfect light, i.e. not by divine grace. That the present and the near future are unclear, dim to them, unless they are enlightened by someone else. Most commentators believe this is the nature of all the damned. But Dante might be saying that since Farinata doesn't believe his soul is connected to anything greater than his body, his intellect or intuition is therefore blinded. He will never see the day when the past and the future are no more, and time is eternal. For these damned, the present and the future will always exist alongside the memory of the past. Farinata died in 1264, a year before Dante was born. Strangest of all, in 1283, he and his wife's bodies were exhumed to be tried and convicted of heresy. According to one Dante scholar, Farinata was of the opinion of Epicurus, that the soul dies with the body and maintained that human happiness consisted in temporal pleasure, but he did not follow these in the way that Epicurus did. The scholar goes on to give examples in the way he overindulged. And shortly after this mock trial, the Guelph and the papacy finally regained control of Florence with the help of young Dante Alighieri in the Battle of Campaldino in 1284. Uberti's properties were burned to the ground, with some being designated desecrated space, on which nothing new has been built. The pilgrim finishes up his talk with the war hero by boldly commanding him to deliver a message to his fallen gravemate, Cavalcante. He wants to clarify that Guido is still among the living, and that the pilgrim's hesitation was only about the question that Farinata just answered. As I mentioned earlier, there is something unique about this mention of Guido in the poem. When Dante began writing this poem, his friend Guido was already dead, having contracted malaria while in exile, an exile Dante was forced to sentence him to. Although the pilgrim thinks Guido is alive, and the poem says Guido is alive, the mere mention of his death in and of itself is a portent that Dante the poet has slipped into the narrative. This pilgrimage takes place in the spring, and Guido will be dead by the end of the summer. Here is an emergence of the so-called Third Dante. Virgil calls for Dante, and the pilgrim decides to ask Farinata one more question about who else is buried with him. Farinata tells him more than a thousand, including Frederick and the Cardinal 
Frederick II was the Holy Roman Emperor for the first half of the 13th century. He was what Roman generals called Stuper Mundi, a wonder of the world, a man of many virtues and skills. Frederick was also a fan of sensory gratification, with many addictions and sex slaves. He also did not believe in afterlife and had little interest in the church or scripture. Cardinal Ottaviano Delgi Ubaldini, known to his contemporaries as simply the Cardinal, was also a Ghibelline, who was said to have rejoiced at the news of the Guelph's bloody defeat at Monte Puerti. He also uttered the words, If I have a soul, I have lost it a thousand times over for the Ghibellines. Finally, Farinata can say no more and sinks back down into his tomb. As the pilgrim is returning to his guide, he reflects on the conversation and Farinato's prophecy about his exile. Virgil notices the pilgrim's bewildered state. He tells Dante to remember all that he has seen, but to put it out of his mind so that he can focus on the sights ahead, for Beatrice waits to enlighten him further. The canto ends with our duo once again heading left to continue down the spiraling path into a foul-smelling valley. In the next canto, our duo descend into the lower parts of hell, where the overpowering smell forces them to take a break. While they wait, Virgil explains some of hell's geography, and we learn what God hates most of all. Then we'll get introduced to the usurers. Next time on Dante's History. Thank you for listening to Dante's History. This is the work of one single artist, and I hope to produce more episodes more frequently. If you'd like to help, you could support the podcast by going to patreon.com slash Dante's History. With your charity, I hope to make it through help a little quicker. Now is the chance to use reliable energy to grow your money with the Dominion Energy Reliability Investment. Our new investment product offers competitive returns, no maintenance fees, and flexible online access to your money. Make the reliable investment in reliable energy. The Dominion Energy Reliability Investment. To find out more, go online to reliabilityinvestment.com. That's reliabilityinvestment.com.